Okay, so we're fitting in now with the sequence of Hebrews, which is basically a sermon letter. And so it's my privilege to preach a sermon on a portion of a sermon. It's called a sermon letter because it's really an extended argument on the supremacy of Christ. And then it has some exhortations and some warnings and some remarks at the end. But it really is an argument. And I want to share with you some things about the book in general since I'm stepping in here to fill in. I want to get my bearing with the, the book at large. This is uh, from my ESV study Bible. The outline of Hebrews has the introduction of Jesus is superior to angelic beings, and we've heard that preached, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 through 10, and I'll be preaching from chapter 3, 1 through 6, on the superiority of Jesus to the Mosaic law. And Moses represents that as the key, the head figure of that, but it's the entirety of the sacrificial system that Jesus is superior to. And then I won't be preaching on this, but we find later on there's the call to faith and endurance, and then concluding exhortations and remarks. The study Bible notes say this about the book of Hebrews. It is a sustained argument for the superiority of Jesus and his new covenant work to angels, Moses, the tabernacle priesthood, and the sacrificial system. Jesus is superior to all of that. And this is written to an audience who is drifting back to that mosaic system, thinking maybe the dietary regulations or the sacrificial system, circumcision, those elements of the mosaic system are necessary for our salvation. They're not totally trusting faith in Christ alone. The book of Hebrews is one of the most stylistically polished books in the New Testament. The writer is a master of imagery and metaphor, allusions to the Old Testament, comparison and analogy, contrast, and long flowing sentences that build to a climax and often use parallel construction clauses. Those are from the literary notes, which I've just started reading in the last year or two. Most of the time you read the commentary, author, recipients, purpose, and not the literary elements. But remember, the Lord is the, he, he's, he's the word. He's the God of language. And so uh, he's an artist in the way that the scriptures are written. So today's passage, Actually, let's go back and read the very first part. As the argument opens up, the supremacy of Christ opens up with the very first words of our preacher. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last times, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So the heir of all things and the creator of the world sounds pretty supreme to me from the get-go. And our preacher is going to just spin that argument. He's going to lay it out. He's going to prosecute it, as Sam has said, point by point. He's greater than the angels, so pay attention. And today, I'm going to go through the passage where it talks about he's greater than Moses and the Mosaic system. Keep in mind that we talk about the, the, the author of Hebrews being a sermon writer, an argument spinner. He's crafting an argument. This is rhetorical. And yet, it's not, uh, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1.21. So the things that I'm going to share to you in the passages of Scripture that I share are not just crafted by a good uh, logician or rhetorician. They're the Holy Spirit influencing him, carrying him along to write what he, he writes and argues. I want to start off uh, 
with a human illustration about authority, sovereignty, and ownership. Let's say a man wants a house. He wants the house for his own purposes. He might want to raise a family in the house, who lives in the house comfortably, entertain guests in the house, maybe invite missionaries to his home and plan strategy to go out and spread the gospel. So the point I want to make here is let's look at who has sovereignty and control over the house. A man could decide to make plans for the house. He could be an architect or hire an architect. He could hire servants to conduct the building or the furnishing. He could have servants that clean it, manage it, and those servants would be under his jurisdiction. He could put things inside the home. He could conduct events inside the home. Who's responsible for the events? The home itself and the events in the home and the staff that's in the home and raising the family in the home. It would be the homeowner or the householder. He may share that. If This is a human uh, example. In my case, the home that I own, I share with my wife. And in the state of Oregon, when I die, that automatically transfers over to her because we have joint ownership. And if we both died, our home would transfer to our heirs. So in this human example of building a house, everything that goes on in this property is under the owner's jurisdiction and authority. It's been said that a man is a king in his castle. He's a household sovereign. So the owners of the home really have control over the events in the home. And I want to begin with that illustration. Does anybody recognize that house, by the way? Yeah. He built it. He designed it. Yeah. You know where it is? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. Cave Junction. There's a replica in Cave Junction. A Lego replica in Cave Junction. So this is just a human example of a house in a household. Now let's look at house, a little bit of a word study, house in Scripture. Exodus 23, 19, if you're a note taker, I decided to throw, put all the Scriptures up there. You can just write those down if you want to check me on any of those or write them down. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And that really, in this context, means the tabernacle. So the house of the Lord is the tabernacle. This is the place where the priestly activities are conducted. The sacrifices are brought there. The priests take it, and they intercede, um, give inter intercession. So in this case, we see the house meaning the tabernacle. Sorry for you over, way over here. Just have to see through the mic stands. But you can listen to me, and I'll refer to these over here. Oops. And then in Psalm 98, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So the house now is a little more organic. It's not a building. It's not a tent. It means the people of God, but it's still called the house of Israel. We can see this uh, even, I'm thinking of, uh, we watched the series The Crown. We've got in The Crown, there's the Parliament of England, and we have the House of Commons, and we have the House of Lord. There's the House of Saul, the House of David. So many times, house is simply a metaphor for the, the group that's related. House of Israel. The New Testament mentions house slightly differently. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In this case, the house is the eternal dwelling place of God and His people. And then in Galatians, Paul writes, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
used to belong to a church called Household of Faith. We loved the name. And it's the modern church or the visible church. So we see the house being a tabernacle, being a people group or a nation, a chosen people group. It is the eternal dwelling place of God. It is the church visible. This is a meeting household of faith right here, the saints of God. I should, uh, let, me, let me just back up for a second because I missed this, oops, saying this. I won't do that. I will continue. Forget that. Our passage, three, uh, one through six, I'll put it up here, but it's in your, in your Bible. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, and I'm, I've broken this apart, who's he writing to? And what's, what's the therefore, therefore? He's summing up the argument thus far. And she, since he said, well, Jesus is the, uh, he's now the representation of God speaking to us. It used to be the prophets. Now it's Jesus that we are to look to. Therefore, holy brothers, and they're being addressed, holy brothers, they're not just the Jewish brothers. Hebrews is written to the Jewish Christians. Holy brothers uh, implies that they are true believers, that the Holy Spirit has regenerated them, given them new life. They're born again. They're in the family. Holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling. So that calling, that efficacious, effectual calling, they're in the faith. They're true believers. He's writing to them, although we're going to find out as we go through the book of Hebrews that this, uh, this, this preacher is also making the case to people who were there who are deliberately sinning and continuing to do so, non-believers. So uh, in any church, you have people who are truly and sincerely believers. There are some who are what we would call looky-loos. They're checking it out, wondering if this could be true. There are people who have definitely decided that this is not for them, but they still come for some social reason. This is also the case in the church that this author wrote to. You've got a mixed group of people. But this, these arguments are being addressed to those who will receive it. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, and then this is the major theme of the entire book of Hebrews, consider Jesus. It doesn't mean, you know, Check out the buffet, the religious buffet, and then see what you, you know, what, what's best to your taste. But dig in. Listen to the argumentation. Consider the claims that Jesus made. Consider the entirety of the scriptures. Consider the argument that's going to be unfolding here, that Jesus is not only superior to angels, he's superior to the entire old covenant system, and his new covenant is better. Consider Jesus. Invest in Jesus. Don't drift away. He's called here the apostle and high priest of our confession. I'll finish the rest of those verses in a second. The apostle, an apostle is a sent one, an envoy, a representative. Jesus is the, the highest representative of God because he is God himself. He is God incarnate, came uh, to earth in the flesh. He's also the high priest. A priest intercedes for the people between man and God. Jesus is the God-man who effectively represents God, and he represents man. And, and it's already been preached that Jesus is unique in that there needed to be a blood-sacrificed human death to atone for the sins of man, and only man can die, God cannot die. So Jesus uniquely, in that hypostatic union, it was called, fulfills that role. He's the apostle, he's the high priest. Later on, we're going to learn he's the perfect high priest, the final high priest, of our confession, which really just means a commitment of belief. And then, 
The rest of this statement just unpacks the idea that, okay, he's better than Moses. And that's what I'll be talking about. Therefore, holy brothers, who, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was, and here's the supremacy of Jesus' argument in a nutshell, he was faithful to him, God, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And there we have the people of Israel' house. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And I'll try to uh, break that out a little bit later. Very interesting. Moses spoke of things that were to come later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So up front we have a comparison between Moses, the servant of God, and Jesus, who is a servant of the Father, but he's the heir. He's the son. Already we see that Jesus is greater. So since the comparison is between Jesus, the heir, the son of God, and Moses, the servant of God's house, we need to dig in to find out how great Moses is. Is that fair? Because the author does. So I have a bunch of passages. You can write these down or listen to me say them. Exodus 7. This is where Moses and Aaron are being sent before Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Moses is pretty important. Exodus 14, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Numbers 12, 6 through 7. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Today we would say face to face. I speak with him mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Uh, very special status, a trusted uh, ambassador. And then in Deuteronomy, I'd like for you to actually turn here. This is the epitaph of Moses, Deuteronomy 34. Just so that I can say that I made you open your Bibles to two different places. Everything else I will show you. Listen to the epitaph of Moses, <clears throat> likely written by somebody other than Moses, as most ep epitaphs are. But So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. This is 34, 5. We'll read 5 to the end of the chapter. According to the word of the Lord, and he, that would be the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not... Here's the key point here. 
There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And then Moses is uh, succeeded by Joshua. And the Greek version of Joshua is Jesus. The better Joshua, the better Moses. Uh, I'm thinking back to your sermon, the better Jonah. Jesus is supreme, superior to all other takers, all other systems. Be satisfied in Jesus. Is it, I, I have the graphic up there. Moses had divine favor and protection from cradle to grave. So remember the story of Moses. He's empowered by his mother, spared in a basket against the wishes of Pharaoh, set adrift. He gets collected up, raised in, the, in Pharaoh's household to be the deliverer of Israel as a grown man. So he had divine protection at the beginning. And then at the end, who buries Moses? God. In Jude, we read that Satan and the archangel contend for the body of Moses. Check that out. That's in Jude. Short little book. Pretty fascinating. So Moses is important enough that the angelic beings, over which Jesus is greater, are defending the burial of Moses. I can only speculate why they were fighting. My speculation is that if Moses had had a gravesite, the Roman Catholic Church could have gone there for relics later on, had little bits of Moses, this, you know, piece of his hair, piece of his bone. And so uh, they just protected. This great prophet was protected from, or the people of Israel could not practice the apostasy of raiding the grave and doing something with the bones and turning them into relics. That's my speculation. We don't know where Moses was buried. Only God knows. But he was buried. He was not... Um, translated immediately like Enoch was. He didn't rise to a chariot of fire like Elijah was. He was buried. Moses the man, the servant of God, was buried on a mountain near Moab. We just don't know where. But he was a great man. This Moses is credited back. Now we're going to go return back to the Hebrews passage. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. When I was studying this passage, I thought, that's a very curious thing. What did Moses speak of that was to happen later? This is the Moses. If we think about all the things that Moses did, just to continue in the theme of his greatness, Moses was the chosen instrument to go get God's law. When Moses came back down, he was able to just kind of spill out details that I just marvel at. So the details of the tabernacle, the dimensions, the only thing that, that I cannot find the dimensions for would be the candelabra, the lampstand, not the candelabra, I'm sorry, that must be Beauty and the Beast or something. This is the, the, the lampstand, the holy lampstand, it, it talks about the number of uh, what do you, the flute, the fluted things where you hold the, the candles on or the oil basin on, but it doesn't give a height, whereas the, the incense... The, uh, the ark, all those things have dimensions and, and specific details. The dimensions of the, the entire tabernacle. But the, uh, the lampstand is kind of left up to the artist's interpretation, which is a curious thing. Moses came back and he talked with artists about, okay, here's the tabernacle of the Lord, and we're going to build it to these dimensions. Where did he get all this information? 
So God favored him to just implant all this creative information into his mind. And then God gave his spirit to Aholiab and Bezalel, these people that would construct this stuff. And I can just imagine them sitting back and saying, no, that's not right. That's right. So whatever that is, whatever that spirit influence of finding that is just the, that's the perfect lampstand. That's the perfect table for the showbread. That's the perfect uh, incense altar. And that's the perfect ark and cherubim. Yeah, that's the way the cherubim should look. Amazing to me. Moses was favored in this. So he received all this information from God. He holds up his staff, parts the Red Sea, takes them through the wilderness. So what an amazing man he was. And this amazing man spoke of the prophet to come. In fact, that's mentioned in Hebrews. When we get to chapter 11 in what's called the Hall of Faith. Interesting to me, so the... The sermon writer goes from angels to Moses, and he bypasses Abraham, passes Noah. What about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Those are mentioned in chapter 11. They're all mentioned. Aaron is mentioned, and, and uh, Joshua is mentioned. So in chapter 11, the, uh, the, the uh, writer of Hebrews hits Moses again. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26 is what jumped out at me. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The Messiah had not come. The temple had not been built. All right? The Davidic kingdom has not arrived. We've just got the exodus from Egypt here and this whole system being developed. And Moses is looking forward with the power of faith given to him by God to anticipate the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So in Deuteronomy, he's talking about the role of the prophet. He talks about the role of the priest in Leviticus. And uh, so he says, there's going to be someone after me. And people believe this. It's not just another good prophet, the final prophet. So the people are awaiting a final, the perfect final prophet. When the people saw, this is a New Testament passage, when the people saw the sign that he had done, feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So they were versed in the Old Testament. And this group of people at the time of Jesus were awaiting their Messiah. And some of them, now in the audience, believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and now are having second thoughts. Well, maybe... Some of them were thinking, well, he is the Messiah, but we need, to, we need to go back and include some of the old covenant traditions with the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're struggling. Thus the argument. John 7, 37 through 40. When they heard these words, and this is at the Feast of Booths, Jesus shows up dramatically and he pours out water on the land like the priests would do with the pitchers. Feast of Booths. Trying to think of what that water represented, you know, the abundance of rain from spring that God would provide, bring your first fruits from your abundance. Jesus stands up at this ceremony, this feast, and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And some of the people said, This really is the prophet. They were thinking of that final prophet that Moses predicted would come. 
the final prophet. Could it be him? Moses thought so. And then just to kind of clench the deal, what did Jesus think about the contrast between a servant and the son or the heir or the master? He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. All right, so just in terms of the argument, Moses is the servant, Moses is the messenger, faithful over God's house. Jesus is also a faithful servant, but he's the heir and the son, far superior, far superior by an order of magnitude. He's the creator of the faith. He's the creator of the world, of the house. Jesus is the faithful servant. Here's what Jesus said about his servanthood. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And that means people. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus, I thought that was a question. You're just stretching. It's the old public school experience. Question back there. Just stretching. Yeah. The only dumb question is the question you don't ask. I had to say that too. So feel free to ask questions. I've come down from heaven. Okay, here it is again. Jesus is not just, he's not an earthly son. He is the son of God, the eternal son of God. He has authority. He is the household sovereign. And he's playing the role of a servant here. Isn't it a wonderful promise that if you're in the house that G, over which Jesus is the householder, that you can't be snatched away? You can never be kidnapped. If you're truly his, you will want to be in his house, and he will want to keep you in his house, and he has all the power to do so. He has all the knowledge in his omnipotence. He has all the power to keep you. And in his omniscience, he knows all the things that could try to swipe you away, and he thwarts them. He's an amazing householder, a household sovereign. John 8, 29, 28 through 29 says, Jesus said to them, and I think he's talking to the Pharisees here, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, meaning they didn't realize it at the time, when you've lifted him up, it's going to be on a cross, and he's going to fulfill this atoning work. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Interesting. Just as the Father taught me. Sam already covered this, once again, in that hypostatic union, that Jesus in his humanity learned through suffering. He learned obedience. It's a pretty marvelous thing to have omniscience, all knowledge, and yet learn some new things. He learned some things in a unique human way because he took on humanity. What a, what a, what a fascinating deity who completely understands us. He took it on. He embraced who we are so that we would better embrace who he is. Um, I'm sorry, where was I? Jesus said to them, when you are lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. I do nothing of my own, but speak as the Father taught me. Okay, I think I, I finished that. Um, when he was lifted up, he's relating, he's, he learned through suffering. Jesus is the cornerstone, another metaphor. In a house... I've never built a house like this, but I know that there's a foundation. Usually it's concrete or stone. You lay down something that's not going to sink in the ground. And if you want it to be plumb, if you want it to be square and plumb, then you have this really nice cornerstone, perfectly squared with good angles, right angles. And once you set that cornerstone, then you can build out from it. I'm trying to think of 
In my mind, like if you create a foundation, you put up like batter boards and you measure them across and you get it all square. Because if the foundation is crooked, the whole building is going to be crooked. So the cornerstone of a building means that you start off with something absolutely um, right angled that you can build from. Everything that goes from that will be accurate. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation. And we see this in Ephesians. Paul will write, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus as the cornerstone is greater than all the apostles, all the prophets, all the angels, all created beings, because Jesus is uncreated. Self-existent. He is God, part of the triune God. He is the cornerstone of the household of God. Peter writes, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So who is greater in terms of a religious system and the reality on earth? Moses or, or Jesus? And clearly, Jesus is supreme in every instance. Okay, let's go back to Moses, finish up the argument. Moses is so famous that they make statues of him. Now, this is why I like slides. I love to just go on. I surf for information. Moses in stone. So this is in a church in Rome, um, the famous Moses. And it's interesting. Here's a little bit of trivia. Moses has horns. This is just one of those little tidbits. I wondered, why does Moses have horns? I zoom in there. He, sure enough, those are horns. That's not, those are not just locks of hair. Why would, they put, why would Michelangelo put horns on Moses? And the explanation is that in the translation, Moses came down from Mount Sinai. Now, he's got the tablets here, so this is supposed to be. He comes down, and he sits down, and he's got the tablets. Moses has got horns because apparently the word for radiant face in translation, I can't tell you what that word is, but you can check this out, was similar to horns. It was a single word in Latin. Maybe in Italian, I think in both cases, it was similar. So Michelangelo, great artist, maybe not a good translator. <laughs> it says he came down off the mountain with horns. Those horns are going to go away because the radiant face dissipated. But I'm going to picture him after he came down off the mountain with the radiant horns. It's bizarre. <laughs> it gets more interesting because Moses is now depicted at the Supreme Court. He's at the peak of the Supreme Court building. And there are horns on this Moses, too. He's lost a little hair. But I believe those are pigeon spikes. Because he's got them on his shoulders and his hands, too. But isn't that interesting? I have been to the uh, Washington, D.C. Capitol Mall. And it, 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 uh, it impresses me that our nation once had a reverence for Moses and the law of God and the Ten Commandments and the jurisdiction and authority of Christ and his word which we're losing. It's interesting that uh, this is a picture of the statue. I've been in the Library of Commerce, excuse me, Library of Congress, and here's another statue of Moses, many other statues in there. But our, uh, our founding fathers and the builders of the Capitol and that complex revered our Christian heritage and this man Moses as a representative of God's law. Pretty fascinating. These statues have not yet been toppled. But in our culture, all it takes is some kind of a social event to make people turn on their past and you know, just start destroying them. So for now, 
These are still standing. All right. So Moses, a great man, a great servant, spectacular life, divinely protected from life to death. He looks good in stone. <laughs> We're making a comparison. This is Jesus in Rio de Janeiro. Probably the biggest statue of Jesus. Pretty fascinating. This brings up kind of like tangential questions about graven images and stuff, but I think it's pretty fascinating. They, the, the, the people that decided to erect this statue overlooking this harbor of Rio de Janeiro um, that makes a statement of uh, at least symbolically what they put their faith in and the sovereignty of Jesus overlooking this, this harbor. So anyway, Jesus' statue is bigger than Moses. I just thought I'd throw that in there. All right, now this is where I beg your patience because I, I was trying to think. The, the, case, the, the argument has been made. Who's greater, Jesus the son or Moses the servant? Hands down, Jesus is far supreme by an order of magnitude. What does this mean for us today? This argument was written to the Hebrews who under persecution were tempted to go back into a system. Some of them were probably, I mean, you just I have to be careful about what kind of illustrations I bring with this particular group, but I imagine that we have some diversity of belief in here about vaccines and political parties and the right to bear arms and all those kinds of things, and maybe even religious doctrine. Well, back in those days, the division was Christianity is new and it's risky, and there are, there are those people who are now in the church, but after about 20 or 30 years, persecution has not abated. It's getting tough around here. And so maybe we should just slide back over here and be friends with, how about a little ecumenicism here? Let's just compromise a few doctrinal beliefs and move back over here with the circumcision crowd, with the dietary crowd, those kinds of things. And that's the danger. So I wanted to throw up, uh, throw up a little chart here. I should stop saying throwing up. <laughs> Days of the flu. I created a slide of something that has fascinated me for years, and this is called sphere sovereignty. The household sovereign controls the things over his household, but he is not an absolute sovereign. Only God can be the absolute sovereign, and so therefore, I added this to my graphic. God is sovereign over all things. He's the maker, the creator. We're talking about, in, in the realms of sphere sovereignty, we're talking kind of like the US government. Three branches of government all intertwined um, and balanced. Executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch, delegated powers, checks and balances so that the sinful nature of man can't be fully expressed without being checked. That kind of thing. And so when we look at the spheres of sovereignty, I call them, here's another word, fancy word. Take a picture of this if you like this. Sphere sovereignty means that we have a certain amount of control in our sphere. Control for the Christian means grace opportunities to be salt and light, not just um, power trip over people, but to use the knowledge that you have in your Savior and in His grace to influence others positively and to fairly warn them. That's the fair game. So sphere of sovereignty means that when in whatever realm you are in, an operative in the church or a family member or representative of the state, you're all interconnected and there are overlaps. No one has absolute sovereignty. I call this derivative stewardship. Any authority you have comes from God. We know this in Romans 13 about the authority that the magistrate has, 
the government to wield the sword, to use enforcement, can be abused. The government might, uh, might say, you must wear masks to go into a store, or your store can't have uh, customers at this time, or your church can't meet, or your church members have to wear masks. And, so, and then we have the, the, the state kind of stepping into the jurisdiction of the church. Or maybe, what if the state starts saying, uh, like has happened in some communist countries, you have to be registered with the state. Your pastor has to be registered with the state. You can only be approved. You can only give money to an approved and registered state church. And so we have uh, this conflict. I could go on and on. We could do a series of sermons on the conflict between these spheres. But let's just turn it around and say, whatever sphere that you're in, you have the opportunity to be light and salt and influence outward, have an impact around you. Anything good that you've received, any gift did not come from you, it came from God. So it has its source outside of you. Now Hebrews is going to go on, he's going to argue the case that Jesus is superior to all the system, but then he's going to give exhortation about, so what does that mean to Christians? And there will be things later on in chapter 10, uh, 11, 10, 11, 13 especially, exhortations, and they will specifically include things like the sanctity of marriage, hospitality. These are wonderful commands, okay? If God is sovereign, when he says that the church will do these things, we should take notice. And so when he says, entertain one another, it's like because angels may appear unaware. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. Enter the throne room of grace boldly. So don't keep back your problems. You take them to the intercessor, which is Christ Jesus. There's so many good things in Hebrews. It also says, obey your leaders. It says, do not forsake the gathering of the saints, which really for us means get together with the church regularly. Be accountable to the church. Bring your problems to the church. Share them as prayer requests. Be accountable to the, to the elders who they have this charge to guard your souls. Did you know that's in there? Peter writes about that. They have the charge to guard your soul. That means if you're a church leader and there are members that are coming to your church and you've determined that they are true believers, then they're partly responsible for your moral behavior. They're guarding your souls. All of that's coming later in, in Hebrews. So the church has this powerful role to influence the culture. Families have a powerful role of producing individuals and a good work ethic. Families can't force people to be Christians. So the church in this um, sphere of sovereignty chart, these are the called of God. These are the people that Jesus has called. When he says in, in John, my sheep hear my voice, those are the people. And I hope you are of those people. But because the original author was talking to people who were true believers, people who were soon to be true believers, people who were determined not to be believers because they, were, they had hardened hearts. That's true. I hope that as I just look around here, that if you are, if your heart is hardened, I hope that you have no influence over the people who are on the fence currently. That would be like a wolf because if you bear, if you, if you bear negative influence on these other sheep, then it would be the, to the detriment of the house. So I, I, I hope that uh, the enemies are thwarted in God's house. And I'm assuming that none of those people are here. Let's just be nice about that. If you are considering the claims of Christ or the claims of Hebrews, 
That's why I put it in such big, bold letters. Consider Jesus. Think about who you are, your place um, on the planet, and who has authority over you. When I was in college, I came to this point where I took enough classes, I learned enough things about astronomy, about this or that. I was an art student for a while, then I became a music student. I didn't know much about art. I mean, it's one thing to draw pictures, and then you start studying, you take art history, and you start studying the masters, like Michelangelo, uh, horns on my, uh, Moses' side. Some of the great masters, they, they humble you. It's like, man, I can never do that. Why am, I, why am I an art student? And then I started studying music, no music background, and I realized, oh, man, there's a lot of music theory, famous musicians. I'll never be a musician either. And you want to give up. It's very humbling. Or you learn about astronomy. There's something about learning things that humbles you because you know there's more to learn. I would like for you to consider Jesus your next degree program. Study him. Read about him in God's word. Ask other Christians what they know about him through their experience. And let that be your life program to learn and grow as you consider Jesus. Because he offers so much more, he's supreme. He's superior to all other worldviews. Religious claims, nothing compares. So why would we drift away as we so often do? There are a number of reasons for that, but uh, that'll be unpacked later in Hebrews and other sermons. I chose the picture of a dilapidated house because many times the light goes out in an institution. Interesting how some of the earlier colleges were formed as seminaries to train preachers. Harvard, Princeton, Yale. And then over time, doctrinal compromise comes back in, doctrinal disagreements. And now, the ones that I just mentioned are super liberal, basically anti-Christian. Woke. Woke universities. They want to uh, dismember history, erase it. Sometimes the church, the church is always uh, culturally... We should be, um, trying to think of the word, we should be in tune with cultural trends, not be out of touch, not weird, and yet not compromising to the ways of the world. We should not be so friendly with the world that, become, that we start looking like the world. And often, we do. We drift back into accommodating the culture so that we look like the culture, and we no longer look like we are members of God's household. And then we lose our saltiness, we lose our light, our marriages don't reflect the fact that we are under the sovereignty of God, blessed by God. We look like the world in the way that we marry or divorce or abort or do things that are immoral or prohibited. This last passage here, and we are indeed his, his house indeed if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Isn't it interesting that there's a condition? Now remember that Hebrews is loaded with warnings. Our God is a consuming fire, is one of those lines. Jonathan Edwards preached on that. And so there's the grace of God and the promises of God. If you're in the household, you can't be snatched out of it. If you're not in the household, I once heard the joke, you know, so you go to heaven. Which would you like, sir? You show up for heaven like it's a restaurant, smoking or no smoking section. And so that, that's a kind of a trite warning, but... With Christ, blessedness, you're an adopted son in the house of God. Jesus is the, the pioneer, the forebearer, firstborn of many brothers. Over here, you're outside. You don't get in the household. 
You're, you're an imposter. You're a poser. If you're in, I'm going to assume, to be nice, I'm going to assume that everyone here that I'm talking to is a sincere, true believer, and you're excited about this argument because you agree, you agree with it and agreed with it from the, the get-go. You didn't even need to be convinced that Jesus is superior to Moses or any other system. Therefore, you should have confidence in your faith and be ready to share that faith with others. And you should have, don't boast, don't boast in the power of your faith, Boast in the object of your faith, which is Jesus, who is supreme and superior to all other systems and worldviews. That's what I have for you today. I wanted to uh, simply preach a sermon on a portion of a sermon that Jesus is superior. And if you trust in this superior Savior, you will never lack. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the writer of Hebrews that took the time to make the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than angels. He's in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king, the eternal Son of God, who now reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father. And he has promised to return. And we put our faith and we boast in our hope of that return, that we will be with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that eternal dwelling in the future. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Amen.